Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number 5, the last section of Matthew 5. We'll jump right into the sermon in just a moment. Let's pray one more time. Father, we come now to the preaching of your word, and I recognize my insufficiency for the task, Lord. I'm nothing without you. Can't breathe without you. Can't move without you. Lord, it's that resurrection power that we all need today, not only for me to preach the word of God in a way that gets me out of the way and you, forgive me, but in our face. But help me, Lord, uh, as a hearer this morning, all of us as hearers, to hear your voice. Would you be so kind as to speak through these lips, right through the ears, to the hearts of your people this morning. And for those listening and watching online or maybe in our midst this morning who are not yet on the Lord's side, on your side, Lord, they are engaged in church activities, but they've not yet surrendered to you. Father, I pray today they be drawn by your distinct and compelling love in a beautiful way. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen. The recent thinker and writer, John Bon Jovi, (laughs) penned these words years ago. Shot through the heart and you're to blame. You give love. What are y'all listening to? You give love a bad name. Our text this morning points us to this different kind of love that Jesus is calling us to, a love that calls us to love our enemies. Now, Jesus said in John, he teaches us that we'll be known to the world around us by the way that we have love one for another. So the way that we love one another matters, y'all, and that's where you could probably invoke John Bon Jovi. That's the last time I'll quote him. But that's where you could probably invoke some of those lyrics, right? I have given love a bad name when I have not loved my brother or sister well, right? Folks are watching us live this thing called life and they're watching the way that we treat others that aren't like us, that disagree with us, but that are Christians and they want to see something that compels them. You and I have an opportunity to do that as Christ lives through us. But this this morning is more than a flash in the pan kind of love. It's more than just a good deed. It's a rewiring kind of love that fundamentally changes us from within. It addresses the fruit and the root kind of love. This is counter-cultural. It's swimming upstream against the mainstream kind of fruit in a culture that seeks to divide and cause unnecessary and hostile divisions in the process. Jesus says, love your enemies. As we come to the text this morning, this is the sixth antithetical, big word. I like saying it. I don't say it often, but I've gotten to say it a couple times in the Sermon on the Mount, so antithetical. Makes me feel like I should do this. Antithetical. Uh, It's just this way that Jesus has saying, you heard this, but I'm here to tell you that. Okay, that's the fancy way of saying it. 
I'm all, I know that we're all grateful to the work of translators who have painstakingly navigated the Greek and Hebrew texts of the Bible and put them in a language and preserved them in a language we can understand. Now, you and I both understand, many of you, and if this is a newsflash to you, listen, I don't want to tell you how old of a Christian I was before I found this out, so you're in good company. But um, I was older than I should have been before I realized that the Bible, when it was written, wasn't actually written in chapters and verses. Like Paul wasn't going around saying, and you'll notice in verse five, right? That's something we have now, but aren't you glad? Can you imagine me saying this morning, take your scroll of Matthew and roll it out until you're about 1935ths through it, and you should land, reading right to left, of course. Oh, come on, right? So I'm grateful for the work of translators. Here's what we notice. There is a distinct change of tone at the end of chapter 5 into chapter 6. Still the same Sermon on the Mount, but the, the tone changes. And he finishes up these six, you've heard it said, but I say this, right here in chapter 5. Take with me, though, this zooming out kind of view. Think back to the Beatitudes. What's God calling us to? What kind of life is God calling those who claim to be his followers to? The Beatitudes launch us into this kind of righteousness, remember, that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. It's the kind of righteousness he's calling us to. It's the kind of righteousness he's equipping us to live. And it's the kind of righteousness, if we read the Bible and follow Jesus, he actually inspires us to live. It flows from the poor in spirit, the meek and the pure in heart. It flows out from deep within the citizens of the kingdom. It's when we go to work, whether at home or in the marketplace, when we worship, when we love, when we live, we're doing all that as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And when we come to the capstone here, this is a big one. He's got the verse up for a reason. When we come to this capstone, this exclamation point at the end of the passage today, be perfect as your father is perfect, we're reminded that this flow, it all originates from God. Love my enemies. I'm still trying to get over turning the other cheek from last week. And you're telling me love my enemies? We need Jesus. Yeah, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount reminds us of the hopelessness of our own efforts as we come to try to impress God with our righteousness. Loving our enemies, loving, not tolerating our enemies. Wow. It's been said that returning evil for good is satanic. I think we would all agree with that. Somebody does good and somebody returns evil for good, that's satanic. Returning good for good, that's human being stuff that's like base level you've got a pulse somebody does something nice to you you at least go mm, right that's customer service today yeah uh thank you what how's your day going hmm? what is what's your order um returning good for good is human returning good for evil though that's divine that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Look at verse 43 and wrap your heads around this. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. Now, everybody knows where we've heard that in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor, love others. You see it in the law, you know, and half of the law, it's loving others as ourselves. But where exactly did they get this hate your enemy from? The first part makes sense, but the second part is not actually in the Old Testament. 
And contrary to pop psychology today, we don't need to be taught how to lie, how to steal, or how to hate. It's our natural tendency. In fact, when we see something really good, our brains are working to counter that with something really bad. Look with me at what the law actually said. In Leviticus 19, 18, the Bible says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leave that verse up for just a moment. Let's look at it. Look at it. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the verse here is calling the person, it's calling the you, you, me, it's calling the Israelite not to take out vengeance, not to hold a grudge, and to love others. That's what it's calling. Guess what part they focused on, right? Okay, this only applies, see it, to my people and to my neighbor. Isn't it crazy how we can look at Scripture and find something that makes it easy for us to keep or applies just to us and doesn't push us out of our comfort zone? No, no, no. Here's what the verse means to me, right? Uh. Those of you with us in midweeks know that context, context, context is everything. So if we try to extend benefit of the doubt here to the Israelites that Jesus is preaching to, though, we still fall very short. Think with me. Maybe they're thinking back to the way God commanded them to engage the Canaanites, He said, wipe them out. Well, there's an example. They weren't our neighbor. They weren't of our own kind. God said, wipe them out. So he must mean for us to hate our enemies and hate everybody that's not like us. Maybe they were dwelling too much on the, give me a little liberty here, on the angry parts of the imprecatory psalms. Fancy word. It means that we're the psalmist. You know, you've read them. In your devotional reading, you read these nice, lovely psalms that talk about the Lord's goodness, and then you come across this group of psalms that are kind of together where the psalmist seems to be having a bad day, and he wants everybody wiped out around him, and then he says, but oh Lord, the flowers are beautiful. It's this weird kind of juxtaposition against the two. Those are called imprecatory psalms. They're these psalms of lament where the the psalmist is crying out and, and lamenting well. This is how you complain, actually. And you cry out for those who would rebel against God and besmirch the name of our king and glorious ruler. And you say, Lord, what are you going to do to these people? I, I don't know. And then God deals with the prayer. Maybe they were dwelling on that. But here's the deal. If they just were focusing on that, they were missing the fact that God's acts in those instances were judicial in nature, not individual. He didn't say, wipe out the Canaanites because they're Canaanites. No, it had to do with the judicial nature of God's justice being meted out in the land. Trust me, God is a just God at the same time that he is a loving God, and they don't contradict each other because he's God. Some of us get uncomfortable with that. We always lead with God's love. I'm okay with you leading with God's love, but make sure that you lead with the nature and get to the full nature of God because we're not in trouble because God's a loving God. We're in trouble because we're a sinful people and our sins cannot be tolerated by a holy God. Enter the gospel. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was thinking of another reason that maybe this might have happened why would they say hate your neighbors why would they take something that says love your neighbor and then them go and hate your enemy why would they get there and I, I had a thought 
And I thought, oh, this might just be my thought. Let me, uh, let me dig around and see if anybody else had the thought. And I was validated in some regards. It's this insatiable desire that, that so many of us have. It's, it's wired in all of us, but some of us express it more than others. Stay with me. To, to look for, to find, to highlight, to exclaim, to sensationalize and to normalize a negative response to every positive thing we see. Have you met these folks? Like, you can say, isn't it a lovely day? And they say, but it's going to rain tomorrow, right? They just, their spiritual gift is criticism and negativity, right? Uh, in fact, I found a demotivational poster that applies to here. I don't know if you can read the fine print on this, but here they are. That, that says, you know, every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. This is their mantra. This is their thing. By the way, uh, this is a great one to put in the office. Nobody would know it's not a motivational poster, but a demotivational poster. R. Kent Hughes caught my attention well. He said it in a much more academic tone as he's prone to do when he said this. They see a sublimely positive, elevated statement as an invitation for a negative corollary right you wear me out when you always play the devil's advocate you've got me wondering <laughs> have you ever met these folks just me okay moving on love your neighbor yeah but hate your enemy yeah that works love hate like most of us when we get it wrong we really get it wrong they had to ignore scriptures to come up with that. In fact, in Exodus 23, the Bible says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see his donkey or of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Do you see that? If you see your enemy's animal in trouble, help him. What's the spirit of that? Help the enemy. Love the enemy too. What did they do with that? They founded PETA, right? They thought this was, oh, we love animals. We're gonna take your animals. Remember, Jesus knew the crowd that he was speaking to. The Holy Spirit knows that you and I would be here. He knows where we're struggling. The local Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce probably had a poem inscribed in their building that went something like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink, but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, and then and only then will I fellowship with you. It's to this crowd, this bigoted, xenophobic, and hateful crowd that Jesus says, I know what you think the law says. But verse 44, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. Three thoughts this morning around the passage that helped me as I was studying it. Number one, it's right in your face there. Write it down. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's a sermon title. You should have come up with a more creative first point. Got it. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Why? Jesus loved his enemies. We're supposed to be like Jesus 
and Jesus commanded us to love our enemies. He didn't say, you know what would upgrade your life? Would you like a life enhancement truth? Would you like a pearl of wisdom this morning? You should be nice to people. Not what he said. He says, love your enemies. What kind of love? Is this the same kind of love we have for our family? Is this the same kind of romantic love? I know you say, come on, Pastor, nobody thinks that. I'm, I'm proving a point here. There's a word used there that makes sense. Is this familial love? Is it romantic love? Is this love that I have for a buddy, a friend kind of love? Actually, no. None of those words are used in the original language to define this kind of love. The word that's used is agape. He's commanding agape love. What is that kind of love? Listen, it's a deliberate, intelligent, determined love. Hear that. It's an act. It's not easy. It requires a source beyond ourselves, but it is a deliberate, intelligent, determined love. Invincible good will toward the object. Or you could go the DC talk way from back in the day. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's an action. We can't love our neighbors part of the time, some of the time, once in a while. We're to love them constantly and consistently. Let's go to a familiar text on love to see what this kind of love looks like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Maybe you should alter call there, yes? Irritable? I'm talking to myself. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. For tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Watch this in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. How do children speak? We're even after I hit you back, right? You did that to me. I'm going to do this to you. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, mature, woman, when I grew up, I gave up childish ways. What does that kind of love look like? Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A deliberate, intelligent, intentional act that requires a divine source. Wow. This is the kind of love he's telling us to love our enemies with that's my first thought why do this well jesus did it <laughs> he commanded us to do it right here in the passage second thing that jumped out at me in the passage how do i love my enemies i'll give you three little guys under here three little sub points under here they're quick how do i love my enemies second point i think he shows us right here in the text forgive me as i jump around just a little bit for logic but i think you'll see the flow how do i love my enemies in verses 45 through 47 well, the first thing you do is pray for them. It's right there in the text. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Now, when I say pray for your enemies, 
I don't mean with teeth enamel shooting out, oh, you're doing God, none of y'all pray like that, I know, but some folks that go other places do. Have you ever seen this before? Like you pray, pray for them. It's like when you tell kids to make up and say, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you didn't mean it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean it now. My wife used to lead a Mother's Day Out program, self-explanatory. She was on staff at a church. They came up with a, a, an idea to serve some of the stay-at-home moms and said, let's do a Mother's Day Out so they can drop their kids off and, and you can go be out. I, so Ashley held, uh, led this up and she came up with a lot of things to do. She, her focus was in psychology and child and family development in, in uh, college. And so this was right up her alley. I think she got to do a report and project on it too, so it was great. There were two kids in there, brother and sister, and they cracked me up. They're walking with Jesus now. They love the Lord. But when they were little in there and the little brother would irritate the sister, she would pray for him. Now, my kids know this because I've used this before. She would pray for him. You know what she would say? She would look at him like this. She'd get her face like that. She'd say, Jesus, come down here and look at him. <laughs> Sorry, I should have waited till you weren't drinking there. Jesus, come down here and look at him. And, and I thought we cracked up over that. And then we started thinking, why would she say that, right? That's her probably giving application, age-appropriate application to her parents, maybe saying to her in a discipline time, now Jesus sees you. <laughs> he knows everything you're doing. And so, right, that scared them. And so to scare her brother, she's like, Jesus, get down here and look at him. <laughs> That's not really the way I think Jesus means for us to pray for our enemies. He's calling us to pray in love. Look at what he says. Love, and then he puts prayer right with it. Agape love. Intentional love. Pray. Wow. Pray for them. As the Holy Spirit prays through us with divine love. It's Paul praying in prison. Praying for the Roman guard and helping him from harm when one of the greatest jailhouse breaks of all time occurred. It's Chuck Colson coming to faith in Christ while imprisoned and praying lovingly for the folks that put him there. If we look at the second part of verse 45, it leads us to the next little application. So I said, how do we love our enemies? We pray for them with a loving heart. And the second part of verse 45 says, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust, what do you see there? Well, well here's what I see. I, the point would be something like this. Don't be prejudiced toward outsiders, right? That's the heart of what he's getting at here. We'll unpack outsiders in a moment. But don't be prejudiced toward outsiders. God does not withhold life-giving essentials from folks based on how they believe. He, the sun rises on the just and the unjust. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God doesn't make distinction here with the rain and the sun. Life-sustaining, life-giving necessities are extended to all. One of the greatest modern-day examples I know of this is the ministry and work of Samaritan's Purse. Now, there are others, but hang with me for just a moment. In 2001 and since 2001, September, shortly after September the 11th, 2001, an interviewer thrust a microphone in Franklin Graham's face, asked him some pointed questions, and Franklin Guess what he did? He made biblical statements about Islam and biblical statements about Christianity, and they've brought it up in almost every interview since. For 20 
years, they've tried to create this narrative that Franklin Graham hates Muslims and that Samaritan's Purse hates Muslims and other people who aren't Christians. The only problem with that is if you actually look at the public financial report of Samaritan's Purse, more than half, substantially more than half, in fact, a majority of the money they spend goes to Muslim countries to provide relief, to feed the hungry, and to minister to the poor, and to give the gospel. It's helping in Jesus' name in places where Jesus' name isn't welcome. There's a great example for me of somebody who is not discriminating. We're not withholding help, life-giving essentials from them just because they are enemies of the cross. Now, you and I don't run a major nonprofit humanitarian relief organization, but I wonder in our thinking, as the old preacher from Chapel Hill would say, where is our stinking thinking related to those who aren't quite like us? How do we marginalize them? Be careful of that. Don't, don't be prejudiced against outsiders. The life that Jesus lived was the best commentary of this. He constantly was in the presence of sinners who needed saving. Our lives, too, should be an asset, not a liability, to our gospel witness. When we allow Christ to work in us and love through us, loving our enemies the way he did and he commands us to, it leads me to the third point I noticed right here in the text. It's this, we'll be different, we'll be distinct from the culture around us. Jesus gives two examples here. He talks about the tax collector, which by the way, in the day were considered legalized robbers, compensated public thieves. Thieves, thieves is not a word, thieves. They were good at thieving. They were stealing and the Jews hated them because they would hire not only, they would find Jews that would compromise and do that. That was uh, Matthew, that's what he, I mean, it's just incredible that you've got all this stuff happening at this level and Jesus picks these folks to be a part of his number but he knew that everybody still hates him he, he holds up the tax collector and says look don't be like the tax collector right even the tax collectors buddy up with tax collectors you hate them they're marginalized as an institution here's here's my point from the tax collectors I think a careful look at the church should reveal that she is not an enemy institution that's not what we are that some make us out to be. Jesus referenced a tax collector, an enemy institution of the day. And then he references what? He references the Gentile. The other word there is the heathen. The stronger word there is the pagan. Interchangeable words there. Not just outsiders, but folks who are actively engaged in anti-God of the Bible activities. I think a careful look at the church should reveal that she sees the beauty and dignity of all of our fellow image bearers regardless of what we believe because pagans didn't do that. Pagans treated humans very low. In fact, would sacrifice humans, abducting, sacrifice. That still happens today, by the way. Pagan cultures. Jesus is saying, we live distinct from these. Pagans even talk with pagans. Tax collectors even talk with tax collectors, but they don't talk and interact. We're going to love our enemies. Why? Because we're Christ's church. And Jesus did it, and he commands us to. Third and final observation from the text this morning. Love our enemies. Love like the Father so that others will see him. 
I think you see why I jumped there. Love like the Father so that others will see him. This is kind of in the first little bit of the text and then the final part. Two verses to reference here. It's Matthew 5, of course, 45 and 48, if you're taking notes. Look at the first part of 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That doesn't mean if you do these things, you become a Christian. That's not what he's saying, of course. It's so that you'll be known as the sons of your Father who's in heaven. Love like the Father. The last part, that hardest part of the text, right? Verse 48, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here Jesus is commanding this kind of love. He wants us to love like the Father loves. He wants us to love, watch this, without limits. A love that loves everyone, regardless of what they say or what they do. Again, we're not talking about a family love, a buddy love, a romantic love, even an emotional kind of expression of love. This is that deliberate act that the Lord calls us to. When we love without limits, we point directly to God. We do. When we love without limits, we point out to others that we actually belong to God. It's not our political bullhorns that will cause the world to take note. It's the way we love one another and the way we love our enemies. How we treat our enemies says a lot about us. Most of you in the room, because it's Grace Covenant Church, Pastor D, I still, when I'm asked by other pastors about, tell me about your church, I always grin when I start, get to the middle, and finish telling them about Grace Covenant Church. Love you all deeply. You're a well-read bunch, and I don't get to phone one in up here, I know, so thank you for that too. Corey Ten Boom, most of you know the name, some of the young folks may not. Her family uh, was incarcerated, taken into captivity during the Nazi Holocaust, the persecution of the Jewish people. All of her family actually died in a Nazi concentration camp. Their crime was hiding Jews in their home from the Nazis. Corey survived. After the war ended and all the camps had been closed down, she found herself out speaking and sharing her story and her testimony, and she records much of this in her book, The Hiding Place. Indulge me for a moment as we talk about this loving without limits, loving like the Father, and let me read an excerpt from that book that I think is a great illustration. Her words. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man, that would be a Nazi persecutor, who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I'd actually seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying after I'd spoken, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had just preached to the people in Bloomingdale the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. 
Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled up through me, she writes, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man's sin. Was I going to ask him for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me as I help forgive him or forgive me, Lord, and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, she writes. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or clarity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not on our own forgiveness, any more than it's on our own goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but it's on Christ's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, watch this, the love to go with it. This is not some conjure-up kind of love you gotta work on. It is a deliberate act, but it's as Christ works in us. Loving our enemies is to treat others the way that God the Father in Christ Jesus has treated us. Paul writes, I read it to you earlier, Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love toward us in this while we were yet sinners. And then in verse 10 in Romans 5, Paul then unpacks that a little more and says, we were enemies of God. He still loved. He still died for us. All the world has gone astray. None righteous, no, not one, but God so loved the world that he gave a deliberate act his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Julia's coming back now, and the musicians are coming to the instruments. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Be a blessing to them, even when it's hard. Even when it hurts. Even when you'd struggle to find the strength to lift a hand for a simple expression of salutation. Christ is enough. In a 1958 issue of Christian Century, Dr. Normal Pittenger published a critique of C.S. Lewis. Among his many criticisms was the accusation that Lewis did not care much for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, that's interesting timing, and I'm quoting Lewis in this thing, and y'all are about to go see him, and he didn't like the sermon I just preached. Lewis published, I love that, a rejoinder to Dr. Pittinger. Here's how he responded. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. You don't get to tiptoe through loving your enemies the way Christ loved us. That's where we're at this morning, though. Who's on the Lord's side? We're called to love those who aren't. Who's not on the Lord's side this morning? Come to Jesus. Come now. 
don't wait. How could you reject this loving and gracious God one moment more? Let's pray. Grace alone, which you supply, Lord. Grace alone, we stand in desperate need of that kind of grace to live out the life that you called us to live. Lord, we want our lives to be lives of worship and adoration to you because you alone are worthy. Help us to love one another in a way that's striking to outsiders and help us to love outsiders in a way that they see right through us to you. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord in song.